Caledonian McBrain and the Big Light present... Falcha, I'm Cunyach MacLeod, the Hebridean Baker. Originally from the Isle of Lewis, I'm an author, TV presenter and travel blogger. I spend lots of time traveling around the world, discovering amazing places and the people who live there. But my favorite place is home, the Hebrides, making me your perfect guide to the very best things to do, see, eat and enjoy throughout the incredible islands on the west coast of Scotland. Welcome to Scottish Island Adventures. In this episode, I'm taking you to the second largest island of the Outer Hebrides, stunning South Uist. I jumped aboard the Calmac Ferry from Malig on Scotland's west coast to the main port of Loch Boisdale to visit this island famed for its windswept landscapes, fascinating history and majestic wildlife. Coming up, I meet a local crofting family and their animals to learn how visitors can immerse themselves in the heart of island traditions. I trace the history of South Uist Neolithic and Iron Age settlements armed with only a mobile phone. And I get a taste of Uist as I take to the island's waters to catch something for my supper. But before all that, I'm delighted to introduce my guest, Kathleen McInnes. She's an actress and TV presenter, but is best known as one of Scotland's foremost Gaelic singers. With two solo albums and featuring on the soundtrack to Ridley Scott's blockbuster movie, Robin Hood, she's even performed for the Pope. Kathleen, it's great to have you. How are you doing? I'm just great. It's nice to be here. Great to see you. <laughs> now, <laughs> Kathleen, born and bred on South Uist, is that right? Correct. For those who haven't been, Give us a description of South Uist from your eyes. Well, I always feel very fortunate to have been born and brought up on South Uist. I think the first thing that uh, I love about it is the huge open skies. And of course, I, the first thing I do when I get back home is get down to the beach, to I the Macher. Yes. And there's a 20 mile beach there empty most of the time, where you can walk and walk and walk. It's good if you've got dogs or if you just like some alone time or bring the family down. And the macher flowers, I love the wild flowers, all the colours, the yellows and the lilacs and the blues and uh, I, I love the wild flowers. And just the atmosphere there and of course the people. That's the best thing about the island is the community You're right. and how warm and friendly people are and funny and the music and famous for its piping, the bagpipes and okay. the Gaelic singing. But apart from that, I'm not that fussed about it. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a really special place. And we've both got a similar background. We're both brought up on crofts. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about that. What 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 is life like growing up in a croft? Well, it depends how many animals you have. When I was growing up, it was sheep that we had. And, you know, there was all the different things of looking after the sheep. It was mostly the boys that did the work <laughs> uh, on the sheep. But, you know, 
Gagrunya Huguenot collecting them and moving them around, feeding them and shearing them and all this kind of stuff. I was going to say, Kathleen, when was the last time you sheared a sheep? I have never. Well, I have helped, you know, but I wasn't really involved in that kind of thing. But <laughs> when my mother was growing up, there would be, you know, cattle uh, and, you know, chickens and sheep and all this kind of stuff. And it was all very organic you know, the food we ate in those days, you know, the potatoes came from the macher and uh, we did eat a lot of uh, mutton dishes. I still love badata rouge de sou. You know, it. Yeah, that's really nice. So we were very lucky in that way. We didn't have chickens, though. My mother wouldn't have chickens. <laughs> she thought they were too messy. But <laughs> I absolutely love chickens and hens. So but unfortunately, we didn't have that. So. Well, for many, a visit to the Hebrides offers the chance to leave behind the hustle and bustle of daily life and learn more about island traditions. Long Island Retreats at Loch Skippard offers visitors the chance to experience life on the island with a day on their croft. I met with owners Lindsay and her husband DJ to discover what makes their rugged holiday offerings quite so special. We've just got out the car and we've got one, two, three, four, five wee visitors. Hello. Oh, how are hi, you? Lindsay. How are you doing? Not bad. And you come for a cuppa? Oh, thanks. Perfect. Hi, I'm Lindsay. Uh, myself and DJ run Long Island Retreats and Larder on the Isle of South Uist. Lindsay, we've got the, the wild weather outside, but it's nice and cosy inside. It is, and it's always lovely to welcome you back. <laughs> Lindsay, when somebody comes to, to take one of the island tours, what will they experience? So the island tours are very much celebrating everything that is so unique about the islands. Um, we always throw in a bit of the Loch Skipper magic in terms of coming out to meet the animals. So well, they have to meet the ponies. <laughs> they have to meet the ponies. <laughs> so there will generally be um, some very cheeky Shetland ponies involved. <laughs> um, we also have the Highland cow herd out at Loch Skipper. And then we generally head across to the west side of the island, um, taking in the macher. There's an immense amount of wearer birds on the macher because it's such a rare ecosystem um, and particularly good habitat for them. The macher might be in full bloom with the wildflowers, which is just out of this world in terms of the colours, um, the amount of orchids that you see there. The other side is um, Long Island Larder. So it's all about celebrating our craft produce. It was born out of our passion for the livestock um, and we saw a real opportunity to celebrate the quality of the livestock that we produce on the islands um, and start to finish that um, and sell it both to locals and visitors. So we started producing our own lamb boxes um, about two years ago um, and that's developed now into producing our own Aberdeen Angus beef um, and our pork from the pigs that you just met. Wow, I, I did just meet and what a, what a bunch of characters they were. Well, Lindsay, I can't wait to go out and visit the croft. I can see somebody up on the hills there. That looks like DJ coming down, so we'll give him a shout and uh, get him involved. Great. We've taken a wee bit of shelter here, DJ. It's a bit of a wild day. Yes, indeed. Um, it's raining for a change, but <laughs> if we wait 15, 20 minutes, it might dry up. <laughs> Hanging around the shed, you have some pretty majestic-looking antlers here. <laughs> yeah, I have a pair of antlers in my hand here, and on the 
12th of March 2022. Um, I looked out the kitchen window and saw a stag in our field and he looked in a bit of discomfort and I was wondering what was wrong with him. I put the kettle on, looked out the window again and uh, he only had one antler. He had two, two minutes before that. <laughs> and I watched him for another two and a half to three hours and he cast the other antler. The other stags that were with him chased him out of the herd because he was like a stranger. So he was on his own about three, four hundred meters away from that herd of stags. Now, we generally don't lift antlers, and the reason for that being is that the stags chew the antlers to get calcium out of them to grow the new ones. So I have antlers at the house that aren't so good, so I chuck them in the ground and they'll chew them up. and. Uh, that helps them when they're growing their new set of antlers. DJ, you've got a real passion for crofting. Tell us how that's shaped your life. Crofting goes back in our family generations. Um, and when I was a youngster, there was no distractions like today, modern technology. So we grew up, neighbours helped neighbours. We still do that. Coming back and as we worked, like sheep shearing is an example, everybody done their shearing communally at a sheep fank so it wasn't a case of that's my sheep I'm not doing it you just done them as they came out of the fank and it was real a real community and what what's the difference between crofting and farming um, crofting is sustainable living there was an awful lot of poverty um, going back the 1800s and before that and they decided to do something about the poverty and they worked out that the best way for people was to look after themselves, give them a bit of ground so that they could grow their own crops, have livestock to feed themselves as well. So that's the basis of what crofting is. Where a croft differs from a farm is a croft is bits of ground scattered all over the place, whereas a farm is generally one square of ground. So on the west side in Eocher, for example, you have the hill common, you've got your croft, and you've got the macher. So Eocher Macher is a vast Macher, it's over a thousand acres, so from one end to the other of it is bigger than many a village on the island. Tell us about the ponies that you have. Yeah, we have a herd of Shetland ponies, they're roaming freely on the hill in, in Lost Ippert, and the herd was started off by my mother when my brother and I were kids. That's what we had as entertainment was a couple of Shetland ponies, and we had a wee cart and we used to tack them up and take off to wherever they decided to go. We went to the beach, we came out lost the apart, we just went wherever the pony decided to go. Well, let's go for a wee wander and see if we can visit some of the ponies. Then. Very good. Okay. Have you got carrots? <laughs> I do. Right. <laughs> There's two different herds of ponies here. This wee one here should stop. Do it, do it, do it, do it. Well, the weather's turned in our favour now, the rain has stopped, and we're surrounded by, <laughs> uh, on the hill here by ponies. We've got Highland ponies, Shetland ponies, and an Ediscape pony as well. I'm starting to realize why they've become social media stars. They are very cute. <laughs> there's, there's various theories about them as well, how they arrived here. Um, historically, some people say that they had Shetland ponies, or small ponies, and the Spanish Armada for pulling the cannons in for reloading them. And when the Spanish Armada was right off our shores, that the goats and the ponies came off the Armada. I don't know how right or wrong that is. 
So who have we got here? Oh God knows. <laughs> uh, Lindsay names them. Um, she's got the name book. I know that's Murdo. To be fair, he looks like a Murdo. Right. Okay. <laughs> so that's and then there's the small one on the right over there. That's Lachie. Uh huh. Uh, this is a little foal. She would be about six weeks old now. Oh. And very mischievous. Don't blame me if it bites you. <laughs> the Eriskay pony, they really are the pony of the, the Hebrides, but they've got quite a history, don't they? They do. The Eriskay pony was a, an animal that was much needed in the environment of Eriskay because of their landscape. It's rocky, it's steep. They had creels, so they had a wee saddle on their back and they would put creels on, which were just woven baskets for carting peats and seaweed. As a breed, they were nearly extinct. They were indeed, and they've managed to get their numbers steady and got the numbers up a bit as well, which is very encouraging. They get a lot of attention from a lot of people. <laughs> um, they'll quite happily come and speak to you if they want, and if they don't want, then they won't. Kathleen, I mean, those ponies, they're some characters. <laughs> Very, very cute. <laughs> <laughs> and they really have become social media superstars. I think we could learn a few things from, from them. I'll tell you what, well, they know how to do it. <laughs> to book your unforgettable day on the croft, go to longislandretreats.co.uk or simply visit calmac.co.uk. Now, you, you talked earlier about the fact that it's the people of U.S. that really make the island. And isn't it really special that uh, visitors can go and visit DJ and Lindsay and learn more about the history of the island and life on the Croft? Yeah, it's really, it's it's a lovely thing that they're doing, uh, you know, to be able to get right involved and see what it's like firsthand. And also just to hear Gaelic, you know, the Gaelic language. And when we were growing up, we didn't speak any English until we went into school. I went into Garnamoni Primary School and uh, we didn't have any English. So we, we learnt all our English from books. So, um, my English sometimes... Back to front, but, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the language as well. So, uh, it's a, it's so nice to go to a place where you can still hear people talking Gaelic in the shop, and uh, it's such a beautiful language anyway. It is. And talking of Gaelic, your music is on repeat in our house nearly every day. You've just got such a beautiful voice, Kathleen, and, and celebrated across the world. But how important are the stories of youest? in the songs that you, you perform? Well, it's a huge part of it. Um, and quite often that's what draws me to the song is the, is the backstory, whether it's about the fairies that, you know, sometimes I would hear my neighbour, um, Ian Hearney, talk about the fairies that he saw down in the Macher and it wasn't, are there fairies? He was talking about them and, um, like... Uh, I met a lady in Donegal once and she said, it doesn't matter if you believe in the fairies or not, they're there anyway. Wow, I love <laughs> so, that. <laughs> so, you, you know, I, it's in living memory, I remember people talking about fairies. So songs that talk about the fairies are, to me, really beautiful when you know the backstory and also all the other, you know, classic subjects of folk folk songs, you know, the, the laments, the sad songs, coon, you have to help people 
that helps people grieve, helps people cry and and happier songs and songs in praise of the island and all kinds of songs. So it's the backstory is hugely important. It gives a picture of um, you know, you can read history books to find out the facts, but if you want to know how people felt, you'll find all that in the songs. It's very interesting. And for visitors who are coming to the island, where can they hear live music or be part part of the music scene uh, unused? I think the most important we- week in the musical calendar of South Hewist would be Keolis. Yes. Um, that's a, a music school that happens in the first week of July every year. And it's been running now for, I think, about 10 years, maybe more. Um, and it's just a, a fantastic celebration of everything to do with the culture. There's language classes, there's piping, fiddle, Clarsach and of course Gaelic song and they have different tutors every few years and not only that but they have um, sold out concerts every night like the pipe, there's a piping concert a dance night, there's a singing night and then there's the big horo yali at the end of the, the end of the week and they, they sometimes have people go actually into people's houses and have a teheli kind of a thing where everyone's invited to sing a song or you know, play a tune and have a cup of tea and a scone and, you know, the baking, of course, is tremendous every time, <laughs> which is, they, they have an art form, the way they bring the baking out at half time. And it's just amazing. It's great. It's great fun. And people come from around the world, don't they, to, to come to Kiolas? They do. It's very popular. And especially in the evening, uh, you know, the concerts and stuff, really, because all the locals come out and everybody mixes and it's a great week. That would probably be the highlight. The South Coast Games, of course, that's in the middle of July and you'll hear a lot of piping and you'll see the dancing and then a bit of... Uh, What's the caver? <laughs> Not the caver, <laughs> but the big heavy thing, what do you call it? That oh, hi. I don't know what that's called. <laughs> that. That thing. Yeah, uh-huh. and running. So <laughs> The South Coast Games as well, you'll hear music, particularly the piping. South Coast is very famous for it. It really is one of the centres of Gaelic music and song. If you'd like to learn more about Kyolas and their summer schools, head to kyolas.co.uk. C-E-O-L-A-S, kyolas.co.uk. Is there one tune uh, in particular that really means a lot to you? Well, in terms of uh, a particular just one song, that's really difficult. Uh, well, I love the the songs of Dolelang on Banich, um, like songs like Kate Fartikach Galeon, and then of course there's um, all the songs in, in praise of South Uist, the Omoguich uh, and songs like that. Um, oh, that's, that's a difficult question. <laughs> <laughs> well, is there one that you could maybe sing a, 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 a verse or a chorus of just to give us a flavour of what people might hear when they come to the islands? Well, since as we're talking about Uist, I thought maybe we could do Omoguich. Um, O moguist to head mother, Father, fighter, nothing was love, Kathleen, so beautiful. And these stories. They've been part of the island culture for, for centuries, haven't they? You know, they're, they're, they're songs that you sing and sometimes I sing and they're 1700s, 1800s. But is there 
a time that you would love to be transported back to on the island, you know, be it Viking times and Neolithic, very different times, but anything that inspires you from the older times? Well, I think the reason that I sing in Gaelic is because within a couple of words and a couple of notes, I am transported back in time and I can forget present time and I just go on a wee journey by myself and it's great escapism. Uh, in terms of a time, I, I really like the bardic style of, like, the, I love the Gaelic of my parents' generation and that's why I was mentioning Dolelling on a Banig. I like the kind of storytelling, conversational style of the 1940s and 50s. That's probably what I would go back to Amazing. if I could choose a time. Well, with Uist Unearthed, I stepped a bit further back in time. It's an archaeological app downloaded onto your smartphone, and you can trace the history of settlers on the island using augmented reality to explore what South Uist would have been like for its inhabitants throughout the ages. I've just arrived at the new location at Knoxöljar for the University of the Highlands and Islands. It's a new centre for arts, music and archaeology. And I'm here to meet Emily and Becky from Uist Unearthed. Great to meet you both. You too. Hi. Now, I want you to tell me all about this project, Uist Unearthed. Uh, so Uist Unearthed is a digital heritage project and it's basically it was designed to showcase the amazing archaeology we have here in Uist. We've got all of these amazing archaeological resources, but it's not very visible, so there's not much to see. So we wanted to change that. So we use something called augmented reality. And essentially what that is, is you can still see your landscape around you, but using your mobile phone, it brings up a reconstruction of an archaeological site as it might have looked in its heyday. So it's the same technology as Pokemon Go or Snapchat filters, that sort of thing. That's how I always explain it. The oldest site that we look at is a Bronze Age site uh, called Kalkhallen. Um, but we take um, our reconstructions through this project all the way through to the medieval period. What did the Vikings bring that was maybe different uh, to, to the eras before that? Well, if we think in terms of architecture, first of all, I think just the building in a rectangle, basically, which is so different from so for thousands of years before that, for millennia, they're building roundhouses. And then suddenly the Vikings come and they're building these longhouses. They would have had a really spectacular impact on these landscapes. And that's a really nice example from Bornish. That's where we will go and have a look at. There's an Iron Age brock quite near to the site at Bornish. And yeah, it's always interests me that the brock had been lived in for hundreds and hundreds of years. It, it looks like the building subsided a bit, but still people carried on. They keep propping up the walls. And then suddenly, in the Viking period, we have these new types of buildings. And in, uh, at least in this part of South Uist, it does look like um, as soon as the Vikings uh, arrive with their longhouses, people just go, oh, God, I'm fed up of these, fed up of these brocks. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> these leaky, damp brocks. Yeah. <laughs> Get me in the pie halls. Tell us a little bit about the experience of doing a dig on the island. What kind of things have you found that maybe you've just gone, wow? I'm interested to see if Emily's thinking the same thing that I am. Oh, I don't no. know. <laughs> I was thinking of the of the bead. The bead. Yeah. yeah. So bead tell us about really that. Wow. Uh, well, this is a site that both myself and Emily have been working on recently. It's not featured in the app. It's a very recent excavation. Wow. It is a later Neolithic site and it's eroding out of the beach. And when we were doing some finds cleaning, we found uh, a beautiful bead. So it's probably about four and a half thousand years old, wow. we think, based on the, the single radiocarbon date we've got. It's beautiful. I'm trying to yeah. do it. I can't it's think really how to describe nice. it. And it's just, we, we found it in lots and lots of animal remains. So we think it's the remains of a butchery site where they're butchering animals. We've got remains of deers, cows, sheep. 
and then this bead. And we just like the thought that maybe someone's, I don't know, butchering an animal or something, and then they accidentally, I don't know, knock the bead off a necklace or, or, to- <laughs> or maybe it was a toggle. Sure. And they've just gone, oh, I'm just going to leave it. <laughs> yeah, a bit <laughs> like when you might that. drop something when you're putting the bins out. And yes. You think, oh, actually, I'm not going to bother what? fishing yeah. that out. I'm just going to leave it. <laughs> and now for you, it's the biggest piece of yeah, treasure. Yeah. Isn't that fantastic? Yeah. And it's really beautiful. It's really gorgeous. The thing that, you know, we, we talk about a lot as archaeologists is about how busy places like the Macho would have been in prehistory. Um, and as archaeologists, we kind of, we walk along the Macho, we see these lumps and bumps, and, and we can imagine these as being, you know, busy busy sites in the past. Um, and I think there's this general um, mis misapprehension of the Hebrides as always having been really remote, um, peripheral and disconnected. Um, And that's not the case. I I actually don't think that's the case now, but it's definitely not the case in the past. (laughs) And so it's about changing people's viewpoints as well. Mm -hmm. So by recreating the sites, what we're trying to give people is the opportunity to to see these landscapes as busy and as populated. Um, And I think that's been really effective. You know, we're, we're We've got lots of people coming back to us saying, oh, I had no idea that, you know, there were sites here and this was, you know, that there was so much. And that's something that we're really chuffed about, really. Well, I've got my app. I'm ready. Shall we go? Let's yeah, go. Let's do it. <laughs> so we've just arrived at Boronish at the site and uh, it's a really stunning spot. I mean, we've got the big mountains behind us we're on the machar and the flowers and the colors are just stunning it's just a bed of of yellow flowers and 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 daisies and then we have these mounds and i guess you could have just walked past them and not known what they are but this app is absolutely bringing them to life You've successfully found the post, that's the first thing you need to do. And then on that post there, you've got a QR code. Uh, You scan that with the app once you've downloaded it, and that will trigger the AR model of the Viking Longhouse to appear on your phone, life-sized. And it has. Okay. Oh my goodness, I'm so excited to go in. So the, my first task is to find the front door, find I guess. Front door. Now I'm quite tall, well I need to kind of scurry under the, the door. You might need to a little bit, yes. <laughs> this is amazing. So I've just walked in and I'm I've just arrived in by by the fire here. They've not lit all the fires. It's yeah. just quite conservative fire today, but you can see it's a really long fire just to distribute the heat and also just to show off a little bit. I think this is all about people coming together, having a party, being hosted. We think that being hosted, being a guest and being a, someone who's hosting a guest is a really important part of social life there. There's these long tables on each side, which I guess are for all the banquets uh, that are happening uh, in, in the longhouse. But there's also things you can click on and I've clicked on something here and it's called the Ringariki carving. So it's it's made of antler originally, so it's a really special artifact that they find during the excavations. It's made of antler and it's part of a drinking horn. So that's something very synonymous with Viking culture is the drinking horn. So it's a bit of the top of the drinking horn. What's really nice about it is that it's got these little holes at the top where they were obviously hanging it from their belts so that they could have their their drinking horn at any given moment and what's really nice about it as well is that it's got this beautiful carving on it and that's the Ringiriki style which is a Swedish uh, kind of Norse Viking art style and it's this lovely animal we don't know it's kind of almost a mixture of a reindeer a deer maybe there's oh, I'm trying to think what else is there a bit of a dragon going Some on as well. Some people think it looks a bit like a bear. A My bear. kids think it's a bear. <laughs> yeah so there's lots of interpretation there about what it could be but it seems to be some sort of very um, mythical creature possibly carved onto it. It's, it's a style from Sweden but clearly they're, they're referencing that they've got lots of connections all over the place and it's made its way to to us 
So the geography of the Outer Hebrides mean this must have been quite a central piece of trading routes from Scandinavia all the way to Ireland even, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. It's a really important kind of leapfrogging and, and, and kind of stopping point in, in a much wider, more complex trade network. We've got things, lots of Irish material, but also things from Greece, Scandinavia, um, Denmark, all over the place. Emily, Becky, I feel like I've found my Viking roots. I've been in the longhouse. <laughs> this has been amazing. Thank you so much for taking me here. Well, thanks so, so much welcome. for coming. I'm pleased that you feel connected to this building. It's good. I, I think all I need is if you've got one of those horns full of ale or mead to celebrate. Yeah, uh, definitely. Yeah, we we might have to do it in uh, in some kind of augmented reality, but we can definitely have a drink. <laughs> yep. What a fantastic experience. Thank you so much. You're so welcome. Kathleen, it's incredible how modern technology can transport us right back into the depths of history. I found that fascinating. Do you know, I haven't tried the app yet, but I can't wait to try it. I lifted the phone up and kind of walked it into the longhouse. Mm -hmm. I knew the fire wasn't there, but I was still kind of going (laughs) round the fire and to see what was on the table behind. It brought to life something that isn't there anymore. And many of us from the islands know the history of, of black houses or long houses or a broch, but many don't. So being able to offer people that is fantastic. It is amazing. So the, when I was at home in July there, I took my son Christopher, he's 14. He'd never been down. In fact, I had never really seen, you know, the roundhouses down at, uh, at the graveyard, behind yes. the graveyard. And we were looking, we were looking, and I said, it's definitely here, I know it's down here. So we were looking at this place, maybe it's here, but I said, this is very rectangular for a roundhouse, but I think it was a separate tank. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but we carried on down, so down behind Carling, um, where they found the mummies and stuff. Yes. So the information was there, so we had a lovely time to ourselves. Amazing. So I remember in the... 80s, I was in the Pulharden and somebody at the Akihunta was saying, oh, there's loads of gynecologists down on the Mahar. And I was like, you mean archaeologists? <laughs> <laughs> I think they're archaeologists. <laughs> they're different kind of mummies. And it's just so exciting what they find down there. And to be able to see it you know, on your mobile phone with the app is just fantastic. It really did bring it to life. So what is it about U.S.'s ancient settlements that's so intriguing to people, Kathleen? I suppose like with anywhere in the whole world, it's, it's just that going back in time and it's fascinating to think about how people lived centuries ago. And I suppose for U.S., I mean, I remember, you know, in the 1970s going into... Tai and Tui, you know, the thatched. Thatched black houses. Yeah, mm-hmm. and they were, you know, how dark they were inside. So I don't need to go to a museum to... <laughs> <laughs> you remember I can that. actually remember, yeah. <laughs> but you would go in and there would be obviously the big step down and it'd be dark. There'd be a bengi, which was like a wooden bench. And there'd be kind of not many rooms, maybe just two rooms or something like that. And then, but they were cosy, you know, in the fire. And I think people are just interested in old buildings in general. Well, you're going way back then, but I can only, I can't remember that far back. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I guess it's just it's just it's the same with the songs where you can go and visit another time and another place where things were different. Life was simpler. You know, you didn't have so much noise going on and I guess it's maybe your it's nice to give your brain a little break and think about how people lived in those days, I guess. 
to discover U.S. ancient history for yourself. Why not download the app or follow U.S. Unearthed on Instagram or Facebook? Or simply visit calmac.co.uk. Every Scottish island in your bucket list. Every sunrise, every waterfall, every bird song, every seashell, every stroll along the edge of the world, every new friend you make, every dance, every dram, every downpour, every crackling campfire, every sparkling night sky, every feast under harbour lights, and every photo under that red Calmac funnel. Every moment, every memory, every journey starts a story. And you can start yours at calmac.co.uk. Tiny Changes is Scotland's national young people's mental health charity. Since 2019, Tiny Changes has helped over 4,000 young minds across Scotland feel better. The charity was set up in memory of artist and frightened rabbit frontman Scott Hutchison. Through his music and art, Scott made tiny changes that had a big impact. His honesty and openness about his own mental health inspired people from all walks of life. The team behind Tiny Changes believes that Scotland's young people deserve great mental health. For more information and to donate today, visit tinychanges.com. Max Adventure, experts in self-guided walking and cycling holidays. You choose your route, your departure date and who you travel with. We do the rest. Includes hassle-free luggage transfers, hand-picked accommodations, easy navigation and 24-7 support. Let us do the legwork so you can put the miles in. This is active travel led by you. Begin your journey at maxadventure.com. Now, Kathleen, we can't talk about the islands without talking about the wonderful food we have. Absolutely. <laughs> and my fondest memories of growing up was, of course, my mum's cooking. She used to make fantastic pots of soup and she did everything so effortlessly. And the scones, you wouldn't believe. And you have to have them on the island as well. Well, I totally agree with you. There's something about scones made on the island. They're just so special. They taste extra light <laughs> and delicious. And she made amazing pancakes and no recipe, of course. And St. Michael must cake made at the end of September. Yes, tell me a little bit about that because that's quite a distinctive bake, mainly for Euston Barra, isn't it? Yes, you, the Southern Isles are Catholic islands and this was a, a St. Michael must celebration uh, bonach. Like, it's kind of like a scone uh, recipe uh, in a triple layer. And they would have the bonach part, which is the middle part, which is like a scone. So, so, so you bake the scone first. Yes. Uh huh. And then there was a pancake mix that you would put on one side, and and is that the, the treacly pancake, isn't it? Yes. A pancake mix. Uh huh. So it's like a different color, darker color. Yes. Yeah, so you'd coat the the scone uh, with this pancake mixture and into the oven for seven minutes, take it out, flip it over, coat the other side of the bonach with the same mixture and back in the oven for seven minutes and that would give you your triple layer St. Michael Mass strew one. That's what it was called. And it's really, it's a bit like 
Christmas cake. You really only have it once a year, isn't it? It has to be end of September. And then lots of butter on it. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And now, I've heard rumours that there's lots of different recipes. Some people put caraway seeds seeds in it. Raisins? What would be your favourite way to have a bonnachstroen? Lashings of butter would be my my preference. So keep it simple with lashings of butter. Warm out of the oven. Oh, warm out of the oven as well, yeah. Sounds delicious. So she would make that and what else, of course. Badada vachada, which is the potatoes of uh, planted on the macher. Yes. And so they would be lifted at the end of the season as well. And, and what would you serve those with? Oh, badada skatan, herring <sighs> potatoes. Herring and potatoes, yes. <laughs> and as I mentioned earlier, badada rooshta su, which was like mutton, kind of a kind of a soup with the, the mutton and the and the macher potatoes. You're making my mouth like that. <laughs> that was a favourite as well. Well, talking of fishing, I think one of the best ways to get a sense of an island is to explore the water surrounding it. So, to do just this, I went out with Donald and Shona from LMS Excursions to try my hand at sea angling. It was my first time and I couldn't have been in better hands. Falcher Donald, Falcher Shona, give it a how. Good to see you. How are you, Shona? Good to see you. Thank you. Thank you. What a lovely boat. What a day. It is. It's beautiful. Nice. Clearing it quite nicely. My name's A. Donald Curry. I'm the operator of LMS excursions from Loch Poitel Harbour. We take out fishing parties and we do other well-being trips as well. Hello, I'm Shona Curry, Donald's daughter. I do well-being excursions with my dad and also host week-long and weekend retreats up here on the islands. So where are you going to take us today? For today's trip, we'll go out to Bahastavag, which is not too far from here, two or three miles out in the mouth of Loch Boisdale. So we'll do a bit of uh, fishing and then we've got some lobster pots out there, some crab pots, we'll maybe lift a couple of these to see if we have any, any catches. Well, Shona, you didn't follow in your father's footsteps into the fishing. You took a bit of a different uh, path in life. Yes, yeah. I've got a passion for wellness. At university, did study psychology, um, went on to be a psychotherapist in cognitive behaviour therapy, a solution-focused hypnotherapist, and most recently, I've got an advanced accreditation in coaching. So I love, again, incorporating a lot of those uh, skill sets. It's in a solution-focused way to help people to move forward, doing work around, you know, empowering women to, to stay into their power. And you've now taken that and and brought it into a visitor experience as well, I guess. Yes, yeah. So I offer everything from day retreats to week-long retreats from, you know, yoga, meditation, walking, the wild swimming, getting out in the ocean on dad's boat, um, getting out to the islands, the surrounding islands, you know, really taking in all of the wonders that, you know, of nature that we have. Because, well, we all know the benefits of being in the outdoors. It's fantastic for us, especially being out in the open water. Like me and my father, well, my whole family, we just have a love for being on the water, being at sea, um, feel very connected to the sea. I guess living on an island, you know, we've been surrounded by water all our lives. Well, let's see, I'm intrigued by the maps that we have up here. Uh, Donald, you're, you're keeping us uh, on the straight and narrow here on the boat. Yeah, South Hewitt is at the south, south end, obviously, of uh, the US at Loch Boisdale here. Next island along from us is Eriski, and then you, further down from that, you, you go into Barra. Usually there's a seal about then there's fish about as well, Donald. That's right. It's a telltale sign or 
seabirds, if you see the seabirds, they seem to know where the fish is. <laughs> so we'll uh, try the rods in the water and see if there's anything down below. Let's give it a try. Okay. Tend to let the line down to the bottom of the seabed and lift it up maybe three or four feet. That's what the fish tend to be. Years back, this was absolutely teeming with herring. There would have been boats landing into Lapoise, massive amounts of herring. Now you see very little of it. And again, massive amount of, of mackerel. Not as much fish around, because obviously the bigger fishing vessels now are they're, um, too effective at ca catching the fish. So the fish stocks have dwindled, but this is very good. You can conserve, you can tr we, tr we throw back a lot of the fish. The line seems to be jiggling up and down, so it looks oh, as, yeah. a, as if we have something on board. Do you oh, want to bring it in? Something. Right, let's give it a go. Okay. Let's see what we've, let's see what we've got. How far is it to Loch Ness? We haven't got the monster, have we? <laughs> <laughs> oh, whoa, look at this. There you go. That's a nice wow. mackerel coming in there. Two beauties. There we go. We also... Uh, to fillet some of the fish quite quickly we have an onboard barbecue on the boat so we can we can cook the cook the fish immediately more or less as it's come off the line splashing around here just a small anchor we put down this okay switch off the engine for a while Donald, we'll just stop the boat and we've got a cuppa. It's a lovely secluded bay here. Yeah, this is Baharstvag. It's uh, quite a sheltered bay. So we've just anchored off here for a wee while. If you see just ahead of you there, you can actually see the ruins of the thatched houses. Settlement. There was quite yes. a settlement here of four or five houses going back um, about 100 years ago. Because I remember my grandmother, she used to live with us and she used to come out here. And I remember telling us the story one day when she was here, she heard one of the children asking the mother would there be anything for them to eat the next day. So they had a horrendous um, time, very, very, very difficult. To cultivate the area, they obviously lived off fish, but it was very, very difficult, so eventually they had to move out. And the children had to walk about three or four miles in, inland to get to school, and that was very, very difficult for them, so they couldn't be, couldn't be sustained. I come from a fa uh, four-generation family of fishermen, when we were about 10 years old, we'd come out here in the middle of the night. Well, you'd leave, you'd be hauling nets in the middle of the night, sleeping under a small deck of a boat just over over in this area here, or sitting in this bay, actually. Uh, at that time, it was a bit of an ordeal for us, but uh, you can imagine going home the next day, going to school, and you had more scales of the herring on you than anything else. <laughs> I'm seeing, I'm going to lift a couple of pots here, maybe get you to go in the boat to right, Joe, you're trusting me with this, eh, yeah. Donald? I'll bring uh -huh. the boat alongside the rope, if you grab the rope. And Clever, I can do that. Them in with the winch here. Okay. I think, uh... Oh, oh, well, we've got a big crab there anyway. Oh, there's a lobster in there yeah. as well. Oh, yeah. Two. Two lobsters. Oh boy, there's some size. There you go. 
Wow. Nice lobster. Wow, that is a nice. beauty. What size is he, Donald? It's nearly about 1.8 kilo. This is kind of borderline. This one, so we'll just throw him back in. Throw him back, yeah. yeah. We'll see him another time. Next year. <laughs> So that's us just arrived back into Loch Boystale Harbour and we're going to get the lobster and the mackerel all prepared for a real bounty and a treat for dinner. I find that seawater is actually got the right content of salt so it's probably the best water you can use for cooking lobster. Right, let's get ready. Water's boiling very nice in here. Get the, the lid on it, fairly sharpish. And how long is he going to be in the pot for? 15-20 minutes. It's turned from that kind of bluey, dark lobster colour to bright red, and that's when you know you're on the right track with the cooking, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely. It's nice and red, so you should be able to enjoy that this evening. I think we'll definitely enjoy that tonight. Donald, Shona, I think this has been the highlight of my year so far. What a treat to go out in the boat with you. Thanks so much for taking us out today. Thank you. You're very welcome. We've enjoyed your company and hopefully we'll see you back again in another fishing trip. Well, I had a cracking time out on the boat and tucking into some freshly caught lobster wasn't too bad either. I mean, what a treat, Kathleen, going out on the boat and coming back with some fresh shellfish, huh? It's not summertime unless you've been to South Uist and you get lobster, which I like lobster, but I love crab claws. Oh, do you? I love, I prefer crab claws. Uh-huh. I don't know how you feel about that. But no, I love them too. In the summertime and you got the beautiful sunsets and then a glass of white wine and a hammer and some crab claws eaten outside. That's summer for me. Oh, I love that. On South Uist. On South Uist, of course. <laughs> well, for more information and to book yourself on a day out on one of Donald's boat tours, head to LMS Leisure Excursions. Dot com, or simply visit calmac.co.uk Now Kathleen, if you were advising travellers on one last thing they simply must do when they're visiting South Uist, what would that be? Well, when I was there a few weeks ago, I had had something on my bucket list that I hadn't done, and that was to climb Ben Moore. Oh. So myself and my son, Christopher, went, we took off and it took us six hours to get to the top and to get back. But it was one of the most amazing things I've ever done on the island. And it's definitely worth, you know, a good packed lunch, plenty of water. We ran out of uh, supplies halfway up the hill. I suppose. <laughs> Not enough scones. <laughs> you know, take plenty of water and the views at the top are spectacular. And if you get a good day, we got the perfect day for climbing. And it was just amazing. So the hill walking definitely is the best thing to do on South Uist. Amazing. I love it. Kathleen, thanks for sharing your stories, songs and your mother's recipes. It's been great to catch up. Thanks for having me. It's been a delight. Well, that's all from this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. 
Please subscribe, like, rate, review and share with your friends. For show notes and more information on this and all my other island destinations plus full details on Caledonian McBrain's routes, timetables, prices and bookings, go to calmac.co.uk. Every journey starts a story, so book your Caledonian McBrain island adventure now. From the Big Light Studio.